This is Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads Episode 1, Fed versus Fundamentals, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton from the FIC Macro Strategy Team to bring you our thoughts from the desk. In this edition, we focus on the impact of rate cuts on spreads and how we can expect spreads to unfold in both the short and long term as the Fed embarks on their first rate cutting cycle in a decade. Later on, we spend a bit of time talking about the potential for a Fed repo facility this year and the impact it may have on spread markets. Each month, we offer a view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics that you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome to our first episode. In this edition, Dan Belton and I will focus on the impact of rate cuts on spreads and how we can expect spreads to unfold in both the short and long term as the Fed embarks on their first cutting cycle in over a decade. Later on, we spend a bit of time talking about the potential for a Fed repo facility later this year and the impact that may have on spread markets. But to begin, let's review where spreads are currently. You don't have to listen to this podcast to know that spreads are tight, but it's worth pointing out just how tight they are. Compared to treasuries, spreads are less than five basis points off all-time lows in some of the sectors that we cover. Naturally, narrow swap spreads are at least partly to blame for such narrow spreads to treasuries, but undoubtedly the other primary driver is the yield grab environment that has prevailed for a good portion of 2019 as investors continue to move down the credit curve in search of more yield before the Fed cuts rates. Of course, the downside to yield enhancement trades heading into a cutting cycle is that baked into expectations for lower yields in the future is an inherent expectation that economic conditions are worsening, which should have an upward impact on spreads as credit concerns grow. This dichotomy between yield enhancement and growing credit concern brought on by looming Fed rate cuts is our primary focus for today's podcast. To study the impact of rate cuts on spreads, we went back and looked at the spread reaction to an initial ease by the Fed in each of the past three accommodation cycles. In both 2001 and 2008, spreads actually moved wider on the back of Fed rate cuts, and this is because the market perceived the Fed to be sort of behind the curve. In 1995, however, spreads ground narrower as the Fed cut rates, as the Fed was acting preemptively. We expect this time is most similar to 1995, given that the Fed is cutting rates while the economy is still fairly healthy. So in 1995, the Fed cut rates three times and then was able to pause before actually hiking rates again. The Fed certainly hopes that this is the most apt comparison to the current cycle. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that this expectation for spreads to remain well anchored is based on the idea that the Fed is going to deliver a dovish cut, which is what we expect. We have to at least acknowledge the possibility, however, that there is a 25 basis point cut that's read as more hawkish by markets and stocks sell off and we could see an unfavorable reaction in spreads. However, we don't expect that scenario to unfold. If the Fed wanted to be hawkish, I don't think they would be cutting rates in the first place. And Chairman Powell has kind of even outdubbed the market at every turn so far this year. So it's very unlikely, but it's, it's something at least worth mentioning. But also supporting the 
idea that spreads will remain well anchored is is how supportive technicals have been in spreads markets. Looking just at the highest quality spread markets like agencies and SSAs, we've seen negative net issuance so far this year and record low gross issuance. Similarly, in the corporate market, we're seeing issuance much lower than years past. And there's a combination of fundamental and technical reasons why issuance has been so low. But when you see very little supply coming from spreads markets and all-time highs in treasury issuance, which is only going one direction, even the debt ceiling resolution we just got came with even more spending, it makes sense that spreads are at all-time lows. That said, it gets difficult to envision spreads going much narrower compared to treasuries, given just basically the zero bound, at least in agencies and SSAs. We could see a couple basis points of outperformance, but further narrowing is made difficult. Nevertheless, we think spreads will remain well anchored, and we're actually recommending up in credit trades at the moment heading into the Fed rate cut. And that's because we expect to see some spread decompression later in the second half of the year. And this decompression we expect will be driven by worsening corporate profits is kind of the effects of the trade war really sink in. We've started to see some impact on profitability, nothing too major at this point. But I think by all indications, the impact on profitability is set to increase significantly later in the year. And that could have some serious ramifications on the corporate market and higher beta names, just given some of the risk metrics in the corporate market now. So of course, you've pointed out the trade war. That's one potential source of weakness in the corporate market. Another that's gotten a lot of attention is the proportion of triple B rated debt in the investment grade index. So while triple B rated debt made up about 35% of the index at the beginning of the financial crisis, it's now about 50%. And as triple B rated debt is downgraded, there's forced selling by funds that track investment grade indices, and that could lead to weakness. And frankly, just by virtue of a deteriorating credit picture in investment grade indices, investors should begin to demand wider spreads, but we haven't really seen that. A second factor that should lead to corporate weakness is the increase in corporate leverage. So corporate leverage among investment grade borrowers is currently higher than at any point in the last four cycles. In the past, as we've seen corporate leverage run up, we've seen an associated increase in downgrades and defaults, but that hasn't happened yet, but it's something that we're certainly watching into you know the next couple years. So all told, given these factors, it's the trade war, the increased proportion of triple B rated debt, increases in corporate leverage. We think that given fundamentals, Investment-grade corporate spreads are about 20 basis points overvalued, and this is based on our investment-grade corporate model, which explains spreads as a function of economic variables, credit quality of the index, and other factors like financial market stress. Interesting. And, and this is kind of the driver for why we recommend those up in credit trades. We don't expect to see any widening reaction in high quality sectors like agencies and SSAs, but we could start to see some credit concern being priced into investment-grade corporate markets that we think are fundamentally overvalued. And I think it's also interesting to note that in addition to sort of fundamental metrics to maybe be a little nervous about the corporate market, there's also some burgeoning technical indicators that are concerning as well. That's right. So the investment-grade corporate index has grown to about 31% of GDP. This is up from about 14% heading into the financial crisis. So just the sheer size alone of outstanding corporate debt should raise some red flags to investors. Additionally, there's about 20% of that that's held by mutual funds right now. 
That's up from 8% in 2006. Third, primary dealer capacity to hold corporate debt is limited due to regulatory changes and the sheer amount of treasuries that sits on primary dealer sheets right now. So as the street starts to sell to primary dealers, there's probably less of a backstop for corporate debt. And these sources of fundamental and technical weakness in the corporate market are something that investors should keep on the radar as we head into the cutting cycle. Because if things play out the way we expect in our base case, we should see a modest widening in IG spreads later on in the year alongside declining profitability from the trade war. But I think that represents at least a short-term buying opportunity, where as the Fed's cutting rates, optimism in the corporate market should be high and, and we should see spreads come back in. But any trades enacted to take advantage of that buying opportunity, we would set with a short-term time horizon because this weakness, both on the fundamental and technical level in the corporate market, we expect will result in a meaningful widening of spreads at some point in the future. But that's likely more in the long term than in the short term. So let's move on to our long-term outlook. And just to be clear, what we talk about in this segment is not a 2019 issue, but more 2020 and 2021. So the Fed hopes to prolong the cycle, but the reality is that we're late in this business cycle, and it's likely that this cut is followed by a couple more and eventually a full easing cycle. So in each of the last three cycles, easings have coincided with defaults, downgrades, and eventually wider spreads. So the question becomes when and how fast does this escalate? It's helpful to look at the experience of the previous two Fed cutting cycles to try and time when spreads might hit their peaks this time around. In 2001, spreads didn't hit cyclical peaks until two plus years following the Fed's first rate cut, whereas in 08, it took less than a year or only nine months for, for spreads to peak out. And this time around, with the overextension of credit focusing on the business sector, similar to 01, we expect it will take some time before spreads peak in this cycle. We should see business spending slow, which ultimately impacts the consumer and ultimately leads to the spike in defaults and downgrades that coincides with a spike in spreads. But it will take some time this time around. So we have to just keep our eye on corporate metrics like profitability or business sentiment, business optimism, business spending. As a deterioration in those metrics will precede any significant move in spreads. It's also worth noting that in both the 95 and the 01 experience, spreads didn't peak until after the Fed had paused or slowed down accommodation in some way. Now, it wouldn't necessarily have to follow that pattern again, but it's interesting to point that out. And if we see a similar slowdown, if the Fed cuts rates three times, then pauses, that might be a time to be on high alert for corporate market weakness. Now, let's try to put some numbers on what a significant spread widening episode looks like. In the 01 experience, which we expect to be closely mirrored this time around, spreads moved about 150 basis points from lows to highs and peaked out at about 270, 275 basis points. And I think that's a fair target to put on what we could expect to happen this time around. Back then, spreads were naturally higher just from rates being higher than they are now. But we could also expect the weakness in technical and fundamental metrics in the corporate market to imply a higher degree of credit concern this time around. So putting together those two counteracting forces, a target of 150 basis points seems appropriate here. But once spreads do move to their cyclical highs, there's reason to think that they could retrace rather rapidly. 
Right. And to your point, we need the defaults and downgrades to sort of work through the investment grade index. And spreads are going to widen just on the anticipation of credit weakness and anticipation of defaults and downgrades. And here's why this segment of triple B rated debt is so important. This is the part of the investment grade market that has the potential for widening to be particularly acute. The spread between triple B and double B rated debt has widened out to 300 basis points over the past two cycles. So once the market begins to price this risk, corporate index spreads have to widen. Then once these downgrades do work through the market and the index is sort of washed of this lower rated debt, we expect that spreads can come in fairly rapidly, especially in the backdrop of quantitative easing. And QE is now firmly a part of the Fed's toolkit. So we expect that the Fed is going to use QE and push investors out the credit curve, which should support the rebound in spreads after they hit their wides. So to bring together the near-term view and the long-term view, we'd expect high-quality credit spreads to remain well-anchored in response to a Fed rate cut, but that we could also see some spread decompression into the later part of the year as the trade war has a larger impact on corporate profitability. Therefore, we recommend up-in-credit trades. And even though some may view the widening, if it plays out as we expect later in the year as a buying opportunity, we recommend being cautious because the next move in spreads in the long term is likely to be significantly wider. We'd like to conclude this episode by talking about the issue of a Fed standing repo facility. Dan, elevated repo has been an ongoing theme in our markets all year as a result of the increased treasury issuance and heavy dealer balance sheets and treasury positions. One possible solution and one that we've been calling for for much of the year is a Fed standing repo facility. Until recently, the Fed has been very quiet on this issue, but in the release of the June minutes, there was significant discussion about the use of a facility and market expectations started to grow that a facility would be implemented at some point. Here's how the facility would work. The Fed would stand ready to lend cash in exchange for treasury as collateral to eligible counterparties at a fixed rate. So there are a couple details that are going to prove very important for the facility that have remained to be determined. Yeah, the two that come to mind immediately are who are the eligible counterparties and at what rate do they set the facility? Talking first about the counterparties, it's going to be banks. The only question is, will it be all banks or just primary dealers? Ultimately, for the market, I don't think this distinction matters much. The vast majority of repo transactions are conducted by primary dealers. There is an optical argument for including all banks. It's not one that I think matters much for the impact of the repo facility. What does matter for the impact of the repo facility is where they set the rate. If they set the rate too high, there's risks no usage in the repo facility and it not delivering the relief that it's designed to provide. If they set the rate too low, then there could be some disintermediation in the market where the Fed becomes the primary repo provider instead of traditional cash providers and short-end markets have even potentially unforeseen circumstances. So there has to be a delicate setting of the rate. And no matter what rate they pick, I think they will give themselves the flexibility to change it. This is going to be trial by error as well. And if they see either too much or too little usage of the facility, they can change it. But in the early stages, we'd expect them to set the rate at the top of the Fed's target range. So that would be 225, assuming a 25 basis point cut at the July meeting, plus a small spread, maybe 15 to as high as 25 basis points. This rate discourages daily use but also will deliver the meaningful relief to repo that the market needs in order to start digesting this oversupply of treasuries 
and get them off of dealer inventories and into the hands of final investors. So we think this facility is going to, depending on its effectiveness, make treasuries marginally more attractive for banks to hold them. As a result, we expect that there should be wider G-spreads, wider swap spreads, and narrower treasury OIS. So the next question is, if you're going to implement any of these trades, when is this facility going to be put in place? Yeah, and we think that the repo facility at this point is an inevitability, both because it addresses the oversupply of collateral problem, which, by the way, isn't getting any better. But secondly, having a repo facility just makes sense for the Fed as we talk increasingly about change in Fed policy. The Fed funds market is broken, and there's been increased chatter recently that the Fed is going to move away from Fed funds as its policy rate at some point in time in the future. And the two most commonly cited alternatives for the Fed to use instead of Fed funds is SOFR or IOER. And if they ultimately go the route of SOFR, having a repo rate as your policy rate and a lower bound set by the reverse repo facility and an upper bound set by the standing repo facility, it just makes sense. So I I think for both those reasons, the Fed is interested in implementing a facility. Now, the question is when. It does feel like market consensus has moved to 2020, just an acknowledgement of the operational hurdles that stand in the way of the Fed implementing it. For example, it took a year and a half from the time the Fed first began discussing the reverse repo facility before it was actually implemented. But this time around, having the experience of the RRP on the side, the Fed should be able to deliver a standing repo facility quicker. And we expect one by the end of the year, primarily because we think the Fed wants to avoid a funding crunch like we saw at the end of last year. As the calendar turned from 2018 to 2019, we saw SOFR trading as much as 70 basis points over OIS on an overnight basis with a significant deterioration in financial conditions. That deterioration in financial conditions, it wasn't just the funding crunch, but it can be argued that was part of what began the Fed's cutting cycle now. And a similar deterioration in financial conditions this year could have even more drastic circumstances for the market, and the Fed will do everything in its power to avoid a messy year end which is why we think the Fed will get a repo facility in by the end of the year. Now, it's true there is some operational hurdles, but we think the Fed can overcome them. They still have three meetings to do so. So our base case is for a September announcement of the facility. We'll look for the July statement and or minutes for increased clarity around the details of the facility. But if September is when one is announced, we can expect to see G spreads potentially pressured and swap spreads potentially pressured into the end of the year. So to take advantage of the repo facility announcement, we like owning spreads compared to swaps because we think credit spreads will continue to be well anchored, but that swap spreads will move wider and you can outperform there. And with that, we'll wrap up our first episode and thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts.
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.